You're listening to As Read By Me, the podcast where writers read and readers listen. Season's greetings, and welcome to our first annual season recap. This is Dave Stiles wishing you and yours a very happy holiday season. This episode is basically a compilation of all the stories, poems, and essays from As Read By Me Season 1. As usual, there will be no commercial interruptions, so get ready for 90 minutes of nonstop storytelling from all of our Season 1 writers. And as a reminder, if you enjoy the commercial-free nature of this podcast, we really can't continue to do that without your support. If you've gotten some enjoyment out of the show this year, we hope you'll consider making a donation by visiting asreadbyme.com and clicking on the Donate button. And now, without any further ado, please enjoy this recap of As Read By Me, Season 1. Hello, my name is Peter Waits. This is Go To Hull, As Read By Me. Hull is a seaside community in Massachusetts. In November 1968, Three months after I completed my active duty in the Air Force, we bought a house at 11S Street in Hull. It was a large, four-bedroom colonial, just a three-minute walk from the bay, and because Hull is a narrow peninsula, we could easily walk across Nantasket Avenue to the ocean in just five minutes. I have a lot of fond memories of the years we spent there. You know who, that's what I call my wife, you know who hadn't been feeling well, She had what had been going around, a really, really bad cold, manifested with sneezing, wheezing, and coughing. A friend decided that chicken soup would be helpful for the physical ailment bothering her. She also kindly gave Yunahu some magazines, figuring they'd be helpful to take her mind off her discomfort. One of the magazines was a book of puzzles, the South Shore Puzzle Journal, from Hull, Massachusetts. The day after we received these wonderful gifts, I went online to Facebook and saw another friend had a story about Hull. The confluence of two disparate people with a connection to Hull was kismet, and it reminded me of the time we lived in Hull. For those of you who don't know anything about Hull, as the crow flies, Hull is only about 20 miles from Boston. There's a bay that separates it, but geographically it's really very, very close. And one of the more popular radio stations in the area was WHDH. And the disc jockey was a man named Jess Kane. And he used to call Hull an insula peninsula, jutting out into the Atlantic Ocean. Actually, if you look at it on a map, it looks like a miniature Cape Cod. The shapes are almost identical. In the summer, from the end of June to Labor Day, it had about 100,000 inhabitants. On Labor Day... 95,000 of the 100,000 people packed up and went back to wherever they called home. The traffic lights were either turned off or converted to blinkers. The parking meters were put away. The prevailing attitude of the Aaron residents was that the summer residents were a necessary evil. They paid taxes, and they left the townies with the responsibility to run the town. Most of us have never lived in a democracy. Most of us have only lived with a representative form of government. Hull, with its roots going back to the colonial period, had a real democracy. Twice a year we had a town meeting, and every citizen was encouraged to attend and to participate. Town meetings were where the funds to run the town were voted on. 
For example, if the street department needed a new $4.95 shovel, the funds to buy it were discussed and voted on at this meeting. Since everyone knew what a shovel was, and everyone knew what $4.95 was, the discussion about the shovel could take an hour. Why do we need it? What happened to the old shovel? How old was the old shovel? Was it broken through negligence? The debate was endless. However, if an item was an expensive widget that no one knew anything about, if it cost millions of dollars, then the discussion and approval regarding its purchase was accepted as soon as the reading of it was completed. This is also where we openly discussed the salaries of every person who worked for the town. Every Wednesday night, there was a selectmen's meeting. And again, every citizen was invited to attend and to participate. It was at these selectmen's meetings where the everyday mundane and trivial items that needed to be dealt with were discussed. The atmosphere was close to being informal. Because of the incredible entertainment that regularly took place, I rarely missed these meetings. One of my favorite stories took place in the late summer, toward the end of August. There was a parade of people complaining about a dog that was running wild on Green Hill. Green Hill was at the beginning of the beach, right behind Paragon Park. According to the complainers, and there were about 20 of them, the dog was defecating on people's lawns. The dog was knocking over garbage cans. The dog was terrorizing people that were out walking. The dog was running through the flower beds and rooting them. The selectmen, Marty Fallon, Wally Richardson, and David Berman, sat patiently as each complaint was given. David had just recently replaced Simi Hearthstone. David was the clean-cut, square-jawed reform candidate elected to clean up the honky-tonk bars. Standing at the back of the room, leaning against the wall, was a man with his arms folded. He had a scowl on his face. It was obvious that he was the owner of the dog. After the last complaint was given, the chairman, Marty Fallon, spoke to the man who had been leaning against the wall. He asked him what he had to say. The owner stood up. He took a step or two forward, and in a loud voice, this is what he said. Ah, fuck em. They're all summer residents, and they're all going home next week anyway. The room, including the three selectmen, roared with laughter. And that ended the meeting. I never heard another word about it, so I guess the complainers went home as forecast, and the dog continued to run amok. In house democracy, with a 20-to-1 majority, the one because he was a year-round resident, he prevailed. Hi, this is Paul Camerata, and this is Song for the Hammerhead, as read by me. When you're a hammer, all you see is nails. A steam locomotive, plain and simple, rails. If a haymaker, everywhere bails. When you're a slammer, all you see are jails. For a bucket maker, all the world's a pail. To the wind, everything's a sail. When you're a storyteller, always a tale. A lover of salad, only has eyes for kale. The weatherman, a nose for hailing gale. In the archer's mind, each day a hunt for quail. To the letter writer, there is only the mail. To the bargain hunter, it's yet another sale. To the scholar, the world is a limitless Yale. To the skier, the whole globe, a road leading to Vale. Or if a hiker, one unending trail. 
For a seafood chef and also a whale, the world's an ocean, chock full of snail. Just as breadcrumb makers covet the stale, when you're a hammer, all you see is nails. Hi, I'm Don Tollison, and this is Always Avoiding Cooperation, as read by me. When a person does or says something I disagree with, I usually pause and count to ten unless there is a need for immediate action. Otherwise, try and discern what was behind their action and or their statement. A rush to judgment is usually a potential rush to foolishness instead. When you jerk your knee vigorously, you may very likely slam it into a solid wall. Take time to see if you can find out what someone else is going through in their life. That can be a very challenging process, but it is worth the effort. So many of the recovering addicts I work with in my counseling profession have background stories that are so sad and that frequently created an almost inevitable sequence preceding their mistakes. This is not to excuse those often devastating mistakes, but in understanding what caused them, you will probably react with a less harsh judgment and also sympathy and or empathy. Thank God and so many people as well that I am 2,781 days clean and sober as I prepare this essay. In 40 plus years of addiction that preceded my miraculous recovery, I made so many mistakes. And had it not been for people who did not rush to judgment and who usually also believed in second chances and opportunities for redemption, I would not be anywhere near the positive place I am right now in my life at 68 years young. How bad is it right now in American politics? I really feel that if a person walked up to almost every member of Congress and said, I have a program that can guarantee world peace in 24 hours, and all you have to do is sign a proclamation supporting my efforts. The response from a lot, if not almost all members of Congress, would be to first ask, are you a Republican? Are you a Democrat? And if that person really did have a plan that would create that world peace miracle, they would respond to you if you belong to the other party by saying that not only do they have no interest in supporting 24-hour instant world peace, they also plan to start a petition to have you vigorously condemned for this outrage. Is this any way to run a legislative body? Is this any way to run our country? A country I feel is the greatest in world history, despite our flaws. But it is definitely a country where bipartisan cooperation and compromise paved the way to greatness again and again. We deserve better today, and we should demand it. Maybe we should try a third party. The cooperation party sounds doable. If two people cannot agree that a beautiful walk through nature is a positive, just because one of you is a Democrat and one of you is a Republican, then your absurdity is beyond disappointing. If you feel I am exaggerating, watch one of the C-SPAN networks for just a few minutes. 
bipartisanship is on the endangered species list, closer to extinction than revival. And that is a terrible shame. Hello, I'm Peter Waits, and this is I Figured It Out, as read by me. When we lived in Hull, Massachusetts, during the summer we would go to see plays at the South Shore Music Circus in Cohasset. Summerstock Theater in the Round was a treat to enjoy on a balmy evening. And one of the wonderful plays we saw there was The Pajama Game. One of the memorable songs from that play was I Figured It Out. I figured it out that dealt with a potential pay raise of seven and a half cents an hour and how that would lead to an annual salary increase of $156. Frugal me, I've done a little better than an increase of $156 a year. Actually, I'm not talking about an increase in dollars earned, but an increase in savings and the potential wealth and my better health. A long time ago, I learned that the difference between a good haircut and a bad haircut is 10 days. About 30 years ago, I stopped going to the barber shop for a haircut. I was bald. And when every two weeks I'd go to the barber shop, the barber would always ask me how I wanted my hairstyle. Like there were a lot of choices. I'd grunt, just cut it. And then he'd grab a clipper and trim the few hairs on my head. A few minutes later, I'd give him 10 bucks for the haircut and $5 for the tip. One day I was in Kmart. And I saw I could buy a hair clipper for $10. And I bought one. I started giving myself haircuts. Are mine as good as what I got back then? No. But who cares? If it's a bad one in 10 days, it'll be good. So I don't care. You know who cares. She tells me my handiwork on my head doesn't look good. But I can't see what she sees. So I'm okay with what I do. And what I do is... For the last 30 years, I have given myself a haircut whenever I wanted one. Using simple math, which sadly is no longer taught properly, over that time, this is what I would have spent had I continued going to the barbershop every two weeks. Let me see, 26 haircuts a year, times $15 a haircut, times 30 years, equals $11,700. To compute my savings on haircuts, I have to factor in the cost of the $10 clipper, resulting in a net savings of the not-too-shabby $11,690. But wait, wait, I'm not done saving money. Here comes more good news. The clipper comes with a variety of trimming doodads, and I use one of them to trim my beard. In other words, I don't shave. And I haven't shaved for about 20 years. No shave means I have no need for razor blades. And I have no need for shaving cream. So I haven't bought either one. The last time I looked, the blades looked to be very expensive. On a conservative basis, I got to figure not buying blades and not buying shaving cream is another savings of about another $10,000. Bringing my total savings to 21690 bucks. And now, and now for the really, really big savings, I stopped smoking almost 32 years ago, in May 1985. I can remember the exact day I stopped because, coincidentally, it was on May 13th when the then mayor of Philadelphia, Mayor Good, authorized the bombing of the home of a radical group called MOVE. And the bombing was responsible for burning down an entire block of homes. 
Every year, the Philadelphia newspapers retell the story, and that reminds me that that is the day I quit smoking. Until I quit, I was a two-pack-a-day smoker. And I figure over time, on average, that smoking habit cost me about $12 a day. In other words, I haven't had a cigarette in about 11,680 days for an approximate savings of another $140,160. And, and this is important, if I had continued smoking, I would have smoked about 467,200 cigarettes from then until now. Putting this together, in addition to the obvious health benefit, over the years, I figure I have saved a rather tidy sum about $161,850. The question then is, what the hell did I do with that savings? And the answer is, I have no proof, just an idea. On a daily basis, unlike Silas Marner, I certainly didn't stuff the savings under our mattress so I could count it. No, the money stayed in that checking account so we could both use it as we wished. And I know it was used because it isn't there. I know this is going to sound tough, but there is only one possible explanation to where all this money went, and it is not what I did with it, because, as I mentioned, I am frugal. I inherited the frugal gene from my mother. I don't spend anything on myself. Ergo, with only two possible culprits in our house, it is easy to figure it out. If it ain't me that spent all that money, and I'm telling you it ain't me, then it's got to be you-know-who. What did she do with it? I don't know. Truth be told, you know who spent my savings of $161,850. I could send her a bill, but I'm not going to do that. I don't want to sound too repetitious, so all I would say is, I figured it out, and being with you-know-who, I know I got my money's worth. Hi, I'm Heidi Bank, and this is a story called 40, as read by me. The October I turned 27, I was unemployed, having been laid off the previous July from the worst job I ever had. I was worried about the future of my career, but overjoyed to be free from the worst job ever and able to enjoy my favorite month of the year. It was a frugal time, living off savings and unemployment checks while I was job hunting, but it was also the season of pumpkin everything, the most wonderful time of the year. So my modest birthday celebration consisted of a visit to Dunkin' Donuts for a pumpkin coffee and pumpkin donut. I chose the Dunkin' at the corporate park nearest my parents' house, where I had stopped earlier to say hello, as one who is jobless is apt to do midday. I drove my white Toyota Corolla with the windows down and the crisp autumn breeze blowing and wore my favorite lightweight corduroy jacket, which I owned for the next decade until I literally wore holes in it and sadly had to let it go. The coffee was spicy sweet and tasted so good. It was a good day. I am four days away from turning 40. Dunkin' is no longer an option due to my healthy diet, which renders donuts poison and makes pumpkin-flavored coffee taste like chemicals. I now express my enduring love of everything pumpkin via pumpkin spice-scented candles and elaborate displays of actual real-life pumpkins. I've been employed at the same place for the last 12 years. I'd get this job seven months after my birthday at Dunkin' Donuts, just as I was beginning to consider maybe trying something else, since clearly this career in TV production wasn't working out. 
I was not freaked out at the prospect of turning 40 literally up until this week. I'd look at the number bemused, remembering when I was a kid and thought my 40-something parents were super old, realizing my 7-year-old probably looks at me now and thinks the same thing. 40 seemed an abstract number only peripherally related to me. I don't look 40. I don't feel 40. I don't act 40. What is 40 anyway? Then suddenly today I find myself pondering my life, questioning my choices, questioning my success, questioning marriage and friendships, questioning depression, which comes and goes like an unwelcome acquaintance, questioning the work paradigm, if perhaps there isn't a better way than giving a job 40 hours a week, questioning how I want my life to turn out, realizing truly for the first time that my life will eventually have an end. Tonight after work, I went to the mall, which, shockingly to my tween self, I really don't enjoy anymore. I got a raise last week, so I treated myself to a shiny apple red pair of Hunter rain boots. Slightly more expensive than that cup of pumpkin coffee 13 years ago, but I'm not living paycheck to paycheck anymore. I love red shoes. They kick ass. These will kick ass in the rain. There's been a lot of rain lately. Hi, I'm Paul Camerata, and this is The Decline and Rise of Frank K. Tork, as read by me. Frank K. Tork's neck was bent on account of all the years he'd spent hauling cement. And his joints were stiff, his spine was curved, the hot and cold wires were reversed in his nerves. Yo, brah, to his pal said Frank, this body of mine's like a broke piggy bank. Yo, once upon a time, it was full and strong, brah. But lately, is it like that? I gotta say, nah. Frank's interest wasn't to be old and frail. He yearned for his old vigor. More wind in his sail. He tried rest and running, swimming and weights. Yo, brah, Frank thought. Working good. This ain't. Let me hit the Googles, brah. Find some new intel. To limber these legs and drain my swell. Frank pecked and hunted for what he didn't know. And then he saw it and whispered to himself, Yo, brah, this may be it. How to breathe and stretch. How to undo feeling like a rusted plumber's wrench. Frank mimicked the moves, read all the pages, and his pain rolled away in slow, steady stages. Until reborn was Frank K. Tork. So much he felt compelled to be a pain relief stork, delivering to others bridge and plank tips, how to exhale stress, and loosen their hips. From his cement pouring, Frank soon resigned to begin a new career of his own design. That's how Yobra Yoga first got started. The studio where healing, Frank K. Torque imparted on the brawniest barrel-chested bra yoga doubters whose bodies ache so bad they'd come to him as powders, ready, willing, and able to try anything to return their step its long-ago-gone spring. I've been there, bra. Absolutely for reals, said Frank K. Tork. I know what you feels. Yo, bra yoga, it won't disappoint. If it did, I'd have never could have built this joint. So try it and see. No more delaying, said Frank K. Tork. I'm not saying, I'm just saying. Hello, my name is Jay Silver. 
This is Loretta Swit and Me, as read by me. If you're not of a certain age, you won't remember that Loretta Swit played Hot Lips Houlihan on MASH. So if you're not of a certain age, go watch some episodes on YouTube and then come back and listen to this, because it's a fun tale for those of us who often struggle to maintain journalistic values in the face of management's idea of television news. In the summer of 1973, WCAU-TV's general manager invited the reporters to join the advertisers and a bunch of actors from MASH at a soiree complete with Lionel Hampton on xylophone, some speeches about how great the new TV season would be, and a pretty good dinner. And I have to admit it was fun to sit at a table with people like Loretta Swit and the late William Christopher, who played Father Mulcahy on the show. CBS always had very strict policies about mixing news and sponsors. In fact, a few years earlier, when I was writing a story about how then-Philadelphia District Attorney Arlen Specter cited a number of supermarkets in the area with health code violations, a sales guy walked into the newsroom asking who was working on the story. I said I was, and he pointed out that one of the supermarket chains threatened to pull all their ads off the station if we ran the story. I introduced this salesman to our news director, Barry Nemkoff, who promptly alerted him to company policy prohibiting crossing the lines of news and sales. The sales guy complained to the general manager, but policy prevailed, and in fact, the sales guy was fired. Those times are long past in television news today. It seemed they were on the way out at the MASH dinner in 1973, too. It was one of the many reasons I ended my television journalism career in May of 1974. One of the key policies at CBS that resulted from the Chicago Democratic Convention riots in 1968 was a solid affirmation that as journalists, we must never, ever stage an event or direct people to perform in front of the camera. So the next day after the MASH dinner, when I was assigned to cover Loretta Swit's visit to the Army's Valley Forge Hospital, where wounded Vietnam vets were being treated, I had the policy slapped in my face. Ms. Swit, while an excellent actress, had no real idea how to behave with the wounded soldiers. She saw our news film camera and said, Tell me where you want me to stand and what to say. Uh, hmm, uh, but, uh, <laughs> I tried to explain CBS policy. But from her point of view, I was simply part of a promotional team. Well, I said, what would you normally do when visiting wounded soldiers? She looked a bit startled. I guess it wasn't something she normally did. So I finally explained all we could do was follow her, and she'd have to figure out what to do. She was not pleased, but ultimately did her best to greet some very grateful soldiers. I watched the constant self-promotion of programs and personalities on so-called news broadcasts today, and realized those policies we cherished in the early 1970s are no longer relevant. Really? The question that raises, of course, is this. Is local television news journalism? In a lot of cases, it's not. Hi, I'm Paul Camerata, and this is The Greatest Houdini, as read by me. Now to Niskeuna, New York, where last night into this morn, the great Harry Houdini has battled a baby Bjorn. 
He got into it easy as he told the crowd he would, then buckled in a child, all the straps held like they should. Harry and the baby waved, onlookers cheered and cameras rolled. In back at rapid rates, great stacks of great Houdini t-shirts sold. Then a gong was struck, the lights were dimmed. The room grew still and Harry called out, Now comes my escape. Can I? Will I? Why, yes, I will. The great Houdini uninstalled the smiling babe with ease. As his assistant took the child, Harry bowed deep to his knees. That moment came last night at precisely 8.01 and was the most recent sign of the great Houdini's fun. Immediately after, the baby Bjorn struck back, its sneaky serpentining straps unleashing zero slack. Harry curved and twisted, disjointing his own ribs, until soon his expression looked like a baby's stuck in a crib. He puckered and he wheezed as if battling quicksand. The Bjorn's grip just grew tighter with each move of Harry's hand. Late hours turned to early ones, the audience increased. Calls went out for scissors so Harry might be released. At present local sheriffs are, there on the scene debating, if Houdini versus Bjorn, a public nuisance, is creating. It's been 12 hours now, and the harness shows no signs of, what's that? Wait, wait, stand by for an update? Why, why yes. Newsflash now from Niskayuna up in New York State, where an unexpected twist has changed the great Houdini's fate. As just before Harry succumbed to baby Bjorn's death grip, Mrs. Houdini onto the stage made a surprise trip. And with a giggle followed by a motion like a snap, she emancipated the great Houdini from his deadly trap. The crowd was gaping, weeping, laughing, speechless, stunned, and wowed. The baby Bjorn lay beaten while the great Mrs. Houdini bowed. Deeply to the knees, just like before Harry had done, placing on this death-defying night a memorable cap of fun. Hello, I'm Peter Waits, and this is We're Built Differently, as read by me. The forever popular comic strip Peanuts had interesting characters. Lucy was one of them, and she often had suggestions for the other characters. Her suggestions began, you know what you should do? A lot of the conversations between you-know-who and me start the same way, so sometimes I think, I am married to Lucy. This might be news to a few people, but male brains and female brains are different. I think the female brain is more efficient and processes information faster. At some time in our early years, we get excited when we notice that boys and girls are externally built differently. And for the sake of science and for the sake of pleasure, even though we are told the explanations are no-nos, we don't stop exploring. We enthusiastically want to physically study and investigate those differences. At our early age, we are so excited by the external differences, we don't spend any time thinking about the reality that internally we are probably built differently too. In particular, our brains are significantly different. And these differences result in boys and girls, men and women, sensing things differently and processing information differently too. As a little boy, I didn't know about this construct, and I didn't know about this capability difference. Hell, even when I grew older, I didn't know these things, and I only learned about them a few years ago. Now, since I'm around young boys and young girls on a regular basis, as I volunteer in our schools, I manage to bring these important brain difference facts to them so they, too, 
will have some basic understanding of what will be a strong influence in their confusing relationships. With this fact in mind, that our brains are put together differently, it is time to get underway. I'm off to a slow start this year. So far, life has been good and has been quiet, very quiet, but with the usual annoyances and inconsistencies. The result is, I please some people and I displease others, especially you-know-who. For example, you-know-who mentioned that our bathroom sink isn't draining as fast as it should. She asked me if I noticed it, and I said that I did. And thus the Lucy side of you-know-who appeared. You know what you should do? We have some gel to unclog the drain. Didn't you know that? Oh, yeah, I said. I knew that. I even know where it is. It's on the floor in the guest room closet. She looked quizzically at me. She started nodding her head back and forth. Then why didn't you get some and pour some into the sink to free it up? Yep, I had disappointed her. It was a good question, and my male answer didn't meet her high standards of who I should be. To put it mildly, my answer frustrated her. It can wait. Yes, the drain was draining slower, but it was still draining, so what was the hurry? I mean, why do today what can be postponed until some future tomorrow? Hell, at our age, we may be able to avoid doing anything about the slow drain forever, and the next homeowner, he or she will take care of it. Her answer to my answer, which I won't print because it caused me to frown, convinced me to get the gel, to get it from the closet, and to get started freeing up the slow-draining problem. That was the audible exchange describing how our brains handled the situation. There was also a silent exchange when I thought to myself, hey, if you notice a slow-draining problem, and you obviously did, then why'd you mention it to me? How come you didn't get the gel out of the closet and pour it into the sink yourself? On the same day that you know who caused me to frown, last Friday to be exact, earlier in the day another woman caused me to smile. My last class of the day, every day, is with Mrs. Pennypacker. Mrs. Pennypacker is a pleasant fifth grade, fifty-ish, attractive, and available woman because she's a widow. When I showed up, she met me at the door, and she said she forgot to tell me yesterday that the Friday afternoon math class wasn't going to be held. To introduce the kids to a drug prevention program, the school has a dare member talk to them, and that is what was taking the place of the math class. I forgot to tell you about the dare program, she said. There's no math class today, but I want you to come back Monday. I really, really, really need you. No problem, I said. I was grinning. I was happy. She made my day. For a brief moment, a very brief moment, I thought about hugging her, but I didn't. Mrs. Pennypacker, it has been a long, long time since any woman told me she needed me, so thank you. You have made my day. She blushed and she laughed. I think I made her a day, too. Hi. I'm Frank Goldstein, and this is an excerpt from my book, entitled, Shoot It Anyway. This story is called, The Second Mirror, as read by me. Local 4 News at 6 starts now. We are tracking the investigation. Some revived worries about it. Two employees were shot. That their policies no longer work. Turn off major electric this appliances that were to get on the From back July back through September, Can you imagine a day without TV news? It doesn't matter what time it is, breakfast, lunch, or dinner time. 
bedtime or even in the middle of the night, you can always get your dose of TV news. And it isn't just CNN or headline news anymore. It's any of a dozen or more networks peddling their version of what they think is important for you to know. More and more these days, though, it'll be local news. Most towns now have a local news that begins in the middle of the night, even long before the early network shows like Good Morning America or The Today Show start. You're more than likely to find a live local newscast on the air almost all day and all night. The reason for all these stations airing hours of local news is simple. You, the viewer, want it. It's also cheap for the stations to run a newscast. There's very few staff needed in the studio with robotic cameras and computer technology running much of the show. Then there's the stories that are always part of the news. Well, maybe they were recorded earlier for yesterday's early morning news. And if they can be run again, well, that's like two minutes of free TV time. One camera on the street can shoot that three-alarm fire, edit the video, send it to the station over a cell phone, or via the Internet. We wake up, stumble into the bathroom, and stare for a moment at that frightening reflection in the mirror. Often we're almost afraid to look. Another day older, more lines, bags and circles. We come out of the bathroom, find the clicker, hit a button, and there it is. Local news. It's telling us where the shooting was and what burned in our town overnight. The newscast is telling us who we are in terms of what our community is. What we've become, how we view ourselves, is now the reflection of the stories told to us on our local news show. We have become hooked. It doesn't matter if it's called Action News, Eyewitness News, or The Morning Report, or any of the other endless, catchy names that news consultants sell the TV stations to try to build an identity for the product. The product is the newscast, and it has become the most important conduit of information into your bedroom, kitchen, living room, your life. Local news. It wakes you in the morning, has lunch with you midday, keeps you company at dinner, and tucks you into bed at night. TV news is reflecting your town's image, an image that you'll carry with you all day, talk about with your friends at work, and want to know more about when the news is on when you get home. Look, there's your neighborhood. Is that your street? Wow, I know that woman from the store. She just said, this kind of thing doesn't happen around here. He was a quiet neighbor. I can't believe this. I'm scared. I think there's a bit of voyeur in many of us. Perhaps the press card is really the passport into the intimate, personal, life-altering events that most people can only experience in the two dimensions of TV news. The cameraman is the real video voyeur on the story, seeing people exposed in a way that most folks would never allow themselves, their family, or friends to experience. Yes, we've become hooked to the second mirror. Hi, I'm Paul Camerata, and this is Numbers Crunch, as read by me. 
Imagine Al Capone, a liar, cheat, a thief, a dirty deedy doer, his crimes beyond belief. He made the cops' lives rough, his victims got it bad, but more than all of them, Al's accountant's life was sad. Because for all the not good stuff old Al Capone did done, despite that pile of sins, folks most remember one. The crime for which they nailed him, that got Al sent away, was all the income taxes that he did not pay. My accountant's got one job, yet evasion of my taxes is getting me locked up. That's simply what the facts is. Call me what you want, Al said driving off to jail. But I'd be a free man right now, if not for that guy's fail. The record didn't bother to note Al's accountant's name. It just remembered that his work, for Al's fall was to blame. Fair or not, those are the breaks, for accessories to mistakes. So while old Al Capone became famous for bad stuff, Al Capone's accountant skills, in history also, got it rough. Hello, I'm Heidi Bank, and this is The Cure for the Common Cold, as read by me. In February 2007, Daniel Craig saved my life at the Super Bowl. I know, it sounds incredible, but it's 100% true. Here's what happened. My job as a video editor takes me to the Super Bowl every year to work on the annual I'm going to Disney World commercial. That February, the Friday before Super Bowl 41, I suddenly came down with a nasty cold. I'd been working in an edit trailer in a pop-up compound for a couple of days, picture ugly wood paneling and questionable cleanliness, and I don't know if I was having some kind of allergic reaction to something in the recycled air or if I just had really bad timing and caught a cold, but I was sniffly and sneezy and just felt like garbage, which is no good because being sick on game day was not an option. You might think that working at the Super Bowl is super fun, and it is definitely a unique experience. But the reality is that it's also a long, nonstop, stressful workday for me, usually around 16 hours stretching late into the night after the game, and I need to be alert and functioning, not sneezing and wishing I was wrapped up in a fluffy bathrobe eating chicken soup. Further complicating things, my dad and my brother had flown to Miami to go to the game and wanted to meet me for dinner that night. But instead of going out with them, I decided to do the responsible thing and stayed in to take care of myself and try to get over this sniffle. So I went down to the little shop in the lobby of the hotel, bought myself cold medicine, and returned to my hotel room for an exciting evening of rest. I took my cold meds, swapped my contacts for my glasses, put on a pair of comfy sweatpants and a t-shirt, and miserably climbed into bed with a box of tissues. In a modest attempt to salvage my Friday night, I decided to treat myself to a ridiculously overpriced in-room movie. And at the time, Casino Royale, the first James Bond movie starring Daniel Craig, was still pretty new and available on demand. I hadn't seen it yet, and I'd heard it was good, so I thought, what the hell, I'm stuck here anyway, might as well watch something. Here I am, laying in the middle of my king-size bed, alone in my hotel room in Miami, on Super Bowl weekend, propped up by pillows, hair in a ratty ponytail, surrounded by cold meds and used tissues, just miserable, watching the movie through watery eyes and fits of coughing. 
About 30 minutes in, James Bond has pursued the bad guys to the Bahamas, where he, for whatever reason, decides to take a swim in the sea. Now, here's where I need to jump in and clarify that I was not unfamiliar with actor Daniel Craig before watching Casino Royale. I had seen him in other movies before he became 007, like Tomb Raider and Munich. And I thought he was good, but he never struck me as notably attractive. But then, as James Bond, Daniel Craig walked out of the ocean, emerging from the waves in tight blue swim trunks, the water cascading off of his impossibly perfect muscles, his eyes the same blue as the sea. And it stopped me mid-sniffle. I literally sat up in bed, put my hand to my chest, and gasped out loud, (gasps) Time stopped for a moment. Then I kind of looked around the hotel room to make sure I was still alone because, damn, did I just do that? Who am I? This was totally out of character for me. Did I really just bolt upright alone in bed and gasp out loud because a hot guy walked out of the ocean? Did I really just have a visceral, full-body reaction to James Bond all beefy and built in tiny little swim trunks? Totally not my type in real life, by the way. I never even thought he was hot before. But sure enough, there I was fully upright, heart racing. I may or may not have rewound and played back that scene several times before letting my heart rate return to normal and watching the rest of the movie, which I really liked, by the way. It's actually become my favorite James Bond movie. And then I finally blew my nose one last time, turned out the lights, and went to bed. When I woke up the next morning, I stretched and reached for my glasses and for a few blissful moments forgot how sick I'd felt the night before. And then I realized, wait a minute, I can breathe through my nose. My eyes aren't scratchy. Sneezing, gone, coughing, gone, gross pile of used tissues. Well, they were still around, at least until the hotel staff cleaned my room. Sorry, hotel mates. But totally improbably and very thankfully, I felt great. No trace of the cold. I was cured. And who did I have to thank for that? Obviously, Daniel Craig. His utterly unexpected hotness had clearly shocked the cold right out of my system. Daniel Craig had cured me of the common cold. I ended up spending that day, my Saturday off, relaxing in Miami with my dad and my brother checking out South Beach. And the next day, in Super Bowl Forty One, the Colts beat the Bears. Tony Dungy and Dominic Rhodes shouted, I'm going to Disney World! And we finished our commercial, which aired on ESPN shortly after the game. All because of Daniel Craig. Hi, I'm Paul Camerata, and this is Horror Story, as read by me. To be more than a monster was once one man's dream, a revitalized man who loved coffee and cream. He baked the best quiches, award-winning scones, but spoke in a way that scared folks to their bones. From this predicament would eventually grow Frankenstein's Grunt, Cafe and Bistro. At the start, he was famous just for being undead, until the owner gained a claim for his monkey bread. The imported Arabicas, organic chais, all roused his patrons like bolts from the sky. Still, not all the walk-ins were ready to see a Frankenstein monster serving them tea. Some shrieked while others turned pale as a ghost, no matter how nice the greetings of the host. And yes, when he said hi, 
was how it sounded. But their fears of violence were totally unfounded. Frankenstein's grunt was a symbol of the passion this exhumed barista had in him for dashing. The walls of the cage the world put him in, the moment it spotted his recycled skin. So on Frankenstein pressed, serving French pressed for breakfast, building the grunt into one of the best cafes and bistros you could ever try. Have no fear that you hear is just him saying hi. Hi, I'm Perry Genovese, and this is W.H. Barlow's Dying Wish, as read by me. The grenadine tissue paper flickered from the open jewelry box. Inside, the peach pit appeared to bob in the crinkles. This was the funeral of T.H. Barlow of the Battery Elevator Company. The peach pit was the last thing he'd choked on. Two rose red plastic cups wheeled on a reception table. The table stood next to four aisles dotted with people. Mrs. Barlow, widowed, scowled at the jewelry box, at the pit sitting upright in a tissue sea. She smoothed her black dress over her knees and picked off cat hair. She turned to her 30-year-old grandson, Marlson. She cupped her hands over his fist. With her thumbnails, she massaged the skin over his knuckles. Marlson said, When you're out walking and you come to a river, that's another path you can take. What did you say? That's something Pop-Op always said. Mrs. Barlow said, Ridiculous spectacle of a funeral. Looks more like a shop party with these red cups. Pastor Blaine had slicked his hair back with a wide-tooth comb. The ridges in his hair resembled sand tracks. His pink oval head shone underneath. He strode up the three steps to the podium. As he drifted under the bony ceiling fan, his white cassock's bottom hems swished. Brothers and sisters, he said. He raised his arms and his cuffs fell back to his elbows. We're gathered here today to remember the late Thaddeus Henry T.H. Barlow, or Hen, for those of us who knew him personally. He lowered his arms. But I'm sure if you were here, you did know Hen. Hard not to. He was more a brother to me than friend, inspired my path, fostered my love of nature. When we were boys, we'd stroll in his woods together. Wouldn't you know, Hen picked the first tick off me, a sucker right on my wrist. The air conditioner's roar cut off. It exposed an ambience of chair legs scraping and rain jackets rustling in seats. Mrs. Barlow thought Pastor Blaine's sermons always sounded cold. She allowed her eyes to close and saw startling, vivid chartreuse green. She whipped up her head. It felt as how a candle can pass its flame beyond the shut-eye seal, but there was nothing chartreuse in this white room. She picked up her purse, brushing its base before seating it in her lap. She dug out a wadded tissue, blotted her forehead, and took off her glasses. She dabbed at her nose the impression left by the glasses' pads. Then she crushed the tissue into her purse. She still couldn't shake the impression the color left. 
Every time she blinked, it burned behind her eyelids. To steady herself, she placed her right hand on Amaralson's shoulder. At her vision's fringe, sidetracked by nausea, her hand appeared to blend into his blazer. Then something zipped across her palm. It seared like a rope burn. She turned. A mysterious black leather glove now bound her right hand. Four holes beamed over her exposed knuckles. Two more rows of smaller studded vents, ringed by metal grommets, extended. They ceased at the storm of blue veins at her wrist. The shock of this glove jolted her from the green wall behind her eyes. She slid her forefinger past the cuff and tried worming it into the mitt. Her cuticle bulged onto the leather. Feet pushed off the floor. Mrs. Barlow slid back into the seat, heels palpitating across tile. Both hands twisted in her lap. Grandma, whispered Marlson. What's that? He pointed to the glove. Even at age 30, he lived in his own insulated world. This is my funeral glove, she said. She pet her wrist with her other hand. It felt soggy. Grown-ups wear them when they're doing important things, she said. She wedged her fist into her purse. Marlson laced his arm between hers and rested his head on her shoulder. Pastor Blaine's voice boomed now. Still strolling, hands behind his back, he pulled on his arm and his elbow audibly popped. He withdrew his head into his chin's ripples. Hen always used to say when you're out walking, he was a man of nature, a man devoted to the solitude of being alone in nature. He used to say that when you're out walking and you come to a river, you've actually come to another path, that that's another path you can take. Mrs. Barlow clawed at her wrist. She tore at the glove. As she struggled, a roll of quarters rattled into a thick keyring and a small corn-yellow box cutter. A lifesaver's log lay hollow, its wrapper corkscrewed. Not now, she groaned. Pastor Blaine said, Hen was one of the few men who understood how the world works. I can't count myself among that sprinkling. No, I can't. And he bowed. Marlson whispered into her sleeve, How does the world work, Grandma? Her chin pressed against her necklace. She was up to her elbows in tan, woven, wobbling purse. She said, Money, that's how it works. And with that, the glove slipped off, and from inside it, a gush of water drained and settled. The lifesaver's wrapper fattened. The tissue grayed. The box cutter gleamed. She said, son of a bitch. After a miserable receiving line, Marlson and Mrs. Barlow stood outside the church and waited for Pastor Blaine. Someone had jammed a rubber-orange doorstop under the black door frame but those at the heads of the meager line still reached to hold the door open. Marlson watched a young boy stick his palm against the door's glass. The peach skin puckered. Next to the second set of doors, someone had stationed an overflowing can of cigarettes. One full cigarette rolled in the wind. Blue wisps pulsed toward the parking lot. Finally, Pastor Blaine ambled out with his hand on the shoulder of a man with a hair-white beard. The older man seized the stair's handrail and staggered down the five stone steps. Ah, Mrs. Barlow, said Pastor Blaine, patting her frail shoulder. His breath smelled like garlic. 
he turned to Marlson. Hello, Mr. Marlson. Hello, priest, said Marlson. Blaine drew his fist from the cassock and spread his fingers. In his palm sat the peach pit in the open jewelry box. He shut it with a snap. Now I am entrusting this to you, Mrs. Barlow, right? said Pastor Blaine. Yeah. And we know there's a fair amount of trust in entrust. Trust to refrain from the things the Lord's not meant for us to do. The things he has, in fact, forbidden us. Yes? Give it here, she said. Mrs. Barlow released her grip on the chestnut-brown strap that kept her purse at her rib. It swung toward her stomach. She took the box in both hands. He failed to resist. She eased it into her wet purse and tightened the cords. Rain sheeted down and glossed the concrete. Marlson and Mrs. Barlow drove home in the Burgundy Ford Taurus. Marlson's fingers laced in the steering wheel. He lurched forward in his seat. Turn signals twinkled through the window. When he glanced over at his grandmother, her eyes were closed. She looked like she was enjoying a wonderful dream. Now at home, Marlson, who was tall enough, took the jewelry box from his grandmother's icy hands. He set it on the mantel, hidden behind an ornamental brown jug. The late Thaddeus Henry Barlow's garden faced his treasured woods and river. It was a mossy, fenced-in pocket behind the house. At its western boundary stood a black fence and Marlson's basketball hoop. The net strings had long ago stained green. Marlson laid a teal spade next to the jewelry box. He knelt in dirt-creased denim shorts. Soil lodged inside the handle's ornamental clefts and caked the blade's edge. He was ecstatic that his grandmother was finally showing him how to garden. We should... Start to plant his pit, he said, gazing at her. Mrs. Barlow nodded to the sky. It was a foreboding green, the same chartreuse that had blazed behind her eyelids the day before. Can't imagine why Priest didn't want us to do this, said Marlson as he dug. He wondered about his grandmother's resulting silence. He hunted for something non-offensive to talk about. Leaves are staying wet, he said, even though it hasn't really rained since last night. They are, she said. He popped open the jewelry box and plucked out the pit and dropped it into the hole. He caught the tissue paper before it blew away. Then his hand combed across the soil, burying the pit. Over it, he crossed two twigs. Dirt crescents lined his fingernails. When will Papa be back? said Marlson. Soon, I hope now, she said. He'll grow in a kind of pea pod. Then we'll have to worry about the smell. I don't understand why people have to die, said Marlson. Then, if he makes it through without any molestation, we'll get a thin, thin membrane. Then what? Then we'll have to worry about the squirrels and starlings who want to masticate him. The sun rose the color of orange juice. Marlson sprang from bed too fast, and the periwinkle sheets snagged his ankle. He tumbled onto the linoleum. She snored with crimson curlers in her hair. He found her wet purse lying upside down its contents splayed across the dresser. He lifted the corn-colored box cutter. He analyzed his wrists. Two paths when you come to a river, he mouthed the words. There would be a moment of great pain, but this was what Pop-Pop had told him. He couldn't bring himself to do it. So he looked at his sleeping grandmother. No, not her either. He retracted the blade and set it on the dresser. 
he raced down the stairs and through the garage. In the garden, he found Pastor Blaine standing in a washed black cassock. Globular dirt circles stained his knees. In garden gloves, Pastor Blaine pinched the peach pit between thumb and index. His other hand grasped a shovel. He cratered the plot Marlson filled and tossed aside its twigs. Can't let you do this, Marlson, he crowed. And I know what you're thinking, that it's my right, that Pastor Blaine has no authority to do this. He slipped the pit under his cassock, released the shovel, and it tipped into the dirt. He hooked his finger into the garden glove's cuff and pulled it off. Sutured to his skin was another glove. What the hell? he cried. The glove's cloth, if one could call it cloth, was a ragged jigsaw of fish scale scraps. A crenellated blue and white trout belly flayed around his wrist like a shackle. A strip of rust-brown eel skin shone. A single blood-red tentacle writhed between and under the strips of marine crust. It acted as a kind of demented stitching, holding the butcherwork altogether. Pastor Blaine rolled his cassock's cuff further to reveal a mucousy, petrified, shad-gray sleeve with kelp strung across it. I'm, I'm going to take this to the rectory now. His shoulder wilted. He nursed his arm. For safekeeping, if you, he winced, if you two are using it so disgracefully. Rotting fish smell rushed to his throat's back. Mrs. Barlow pushed her head outside the window and glared down. The curlers thorned her hair. Blaine, she shouted, we're free to do with him whatever we choose. It's ours to say. The treetops swayed as she spoke. From the leaves, two clots of cardinals burst out and swarmed. Pastor Blaine stuck his hands inside his robe and slunk out through the fence. He threw himself into an idling plum-colored Crown Victoria. He reversed down the driveway. Marlson raised the shovel and cupped one hand to his lips. Now what? he called. Mrs. Barlow leaned her chin on her wrist and tweaked her focus to the treetops. Now, now I don't know what we do. Hi, this is Heidi Bank, and this is a poem called Fall Meditation, as read by me. I step from the house to the wooded backyard deck into a flat autumn morning. Not gray like storms or depression, but a neutral mat, warm and friendly, that offsets the oranging and yellowing leaves. I lay my mat and my cushion on the deck, facing the trees, between the house and the picnic table, which hug me. When I shut my eyes and place my hands in my lap, I try to become one with the fall. The leaves gently float from the trees, landing on the deck like raindrops, and I sit so still that the squirrels ravaging the pumpkins skitter past me like I'm part of the trees. Breathe. Hello, I'm Peter Waits, and this is Getting Screwed, as read by me. In 1955, my parents bought their first brand new car, a green 
six-cylinder, standard shift, Chevrolet station wagon. This was the first car I legally drove after I got my driver's license. I say legally drove because my father taught me how to drive at an early age, long before I was 16, so I had already been driving for a couple of years. Also, after I got my license, on the left side of the rear bumper of that car, I spelled out my name with bright red reflective tape. And on the right side of the bumper, I spelled out you-know-who's name. At that time, around the corner from where we lived, my parents had a neighborhood store, the Fruit Bowl. Before my father got a walk-in cooler to store the inventory, all he had was a small ice chest in the back room. So nightly trips to the produce market, which in those days was around Faneuil Hall, were a necessity. He'd leave our apartment at 30 Evelyn Street around 2 o'clock in the morning, walk around the corner to the store on Blue Hill Avenue to get the truck, drive to the market, make his purchases, and then drive back to the store. He'd get there around 6 o'clock, at which time the truck had to be emptied and the shelves stocked so the store could open at 8 o'clock. This was a family business. We all worked there, my brother and I and our mother. Both of our parents worked very hard and put in long, long hours. During busy times, you know who worked there too. In 1955, in addition to my parents' car, my brother had a Chevrolet hardtop convertible, and the truck was a Chevrolet too. Chevrolet was built by General Motors, and back then, the key used to start any GM vehicle had a good probability to be able to start any other GM vehicle too. I have no idea if it's accurate, but I was told GM only used seven keys for all of their vehicles. So with three GM vehicles and thus three GM car keys at our disposal, the probability to start any other GM car was an odds-on favorite. If any of the GM cars were parked in front of the store and in our way, and if it was there for more than a few minutes, I, with three GM keys available for my use, I would get in the car and drive it around the corner. I don't ever recall not being able to move a GM car. Even before I got my driver's license, I got lots and lots of practice learning how to get in and out of tight parking spots. Those easy-to-replace car keys no longer exist. Back then, for any of those vehicles to have an extra key made cost about 50 cents. Today's car keys have embedded chips, and replacing the car keys now is expensive. Both of the keys to my 2005 Saab have seen better days, and I have no intention of spending about $250 to replace even one of them. Yeah, that's what it now costs to have an extra key made. As for the problems with my Saab keys, one of them has its innards exposed, and the other one is held together with scotch tape, and I'm in no mood to spend $250 bucks to replace either of them. And since I have no intention of ever buying another car, these dilapidated relics are going to have to last for a long, long time. I have to put things into perspective. The value of the dollar is not the same now as it was then. But just so you can see how different things are, here are a few examples of how things have changed. If a customer spent at least $2 in our store, we offered free delivery. For elderly customers, and we had a few, there was free delivery for any purchase they made. One of my favorite old-timers was Mr. Klein, who, in the parlance of the day, he was connected. He always had a smile on his face, and he always had stories to tell. He was reputed to be connected because he said he had been a crony of the former mayor of Boston, Mayor Curley. Mayor Curley, it was said, successfully ran for re-election from jail. 
and he won. Mr. Klein always came into the store with redeemable soda bottles. Some had a redeemed value of two cents and others for a nickel. So we needed to know how to consider his bottles as money. Today's kids would be bewildered to figure out how to account for his bottles and would struggle to make change when he paid for his purchase with dollars, cents, and the bottles. Moving along, for $250 in 1955, you could buy a reasonably good used car. In 1955, a new Chevrolet cost less than $2,000. And I went online recently, and this is what I learned. Today, from Sears, with a lot more electronics than exists in the key to my car, I can buy a 43-inch 4K ultra-high-definition television set for $379. I don't know what all that means, but it sounds impressive. But wait, I can do even better at Kmart. There, for less than the cost of a new Saab key, I can buy a 32-inch smart television set for only $179.99. In other words, the fewer electronics in my car key are far more expensive than the complicated electronics in a multi-purpose television set. As far as I am concerned, I'll be screwed if I buy a new car key, and I ain't going to do it. If the keys stop working, I'll truly be screwed and doing a lot of walking or begging friends and family for a ride. But hey, c'est la vie. Hi, this is Paul Camerata, and this is The Lemonade Link, as read by me. We kids wanted to open a lemonade stand, smack dab on the corner of Flagstaff and Grand. But when we arrived, supplies all in tow, right there on our spot was a telephone pole. Should we relocate, give up our plan, set up mid-Flagstaff or further down Grand? No way, we kids said. That corner's our goal. So what if they just moved the telephone pole? Could that even happen? Not if we don't ask. We agreed, then proceeded to take on the task. We filled out the forms, began a petition. The Lemonade Kids seek pole reposition. We carried the papers to City Hall. This isn't a thing we've considered at all, said the receptionist mayor and clerk. Well, I have, said the bureau chief of Lemon Work. Lemonade was around long before those phone wires, which the need for it, admit it, will quite soon expire. Look to the future. These kids are our link. Invest in their vision. Wireless lemon drink. The receptionist mayor and clerk were dumbfounded, and though trying to hide it, we kids were astounded. Our once barely crawling lemonade stand suddenly had grown legs, sprung up and ran. With a stamp and a seal and a chorus of eyes, our motion was granted right before our eyes. What if became why became how then kapow! On the corner of Flagstaff and Grand we sell now. Where that telephone pole did not go to waste, after we chopped it into seats for our place. A place people stop to sip a cool drink and to hear the old tale of the Lemonade Link. Hi, I'm Don Tollefson, and this is Collapsing Common Sense, as read by me. 
Very soon in the history books, we may add the rise and fall of a benchmark of so many successful civilizations, the rise and fall of common sense. It is often subtle and certainly does not have the drama of the rise and fall of the Roman Empire, but unchecked, it ultimately may do more harm to more people than the downfall of many civilizations during the history of the world. I'm going to avoid politics in this discussion as much as I can, even though it is home to often the easiest examples to cite when it comes to an almost complete lack of common sense in decision after decision. But rather than risk alienating you and your personal political views, let's show common sense all but disappearing in my beloved world of sports. So the opposing pitcher has just walked in two runs, but he has to stay in the game due to the new three-batter rule. That third batter immediately swings at the first pitch, even though it is about 11 inches above the strike zone. So here we go with the first three-letter response to zero common sense in any situation. Duh. And many times I feel like adding multiple H's with something like, duh. In football, you have the late hit and resulting 15-yard personal foul penalty, eight yards out of bounds. Or how about the false start by a wide receiver who only has to watch the ball be snapped? You know what? Let the grammar experts complain, but duh. In basketball, you have the shot with one second left in the game and your team down by three and a player shoots from just inside the three-point line. In hockey, it's the almost certain miss at the empty net that forces a face-off right in front of your goalie in the final seconds, etc., etc., etc. Let me lob in a quick tennis reference there, two non-sports, nonsensical items to be fair to those of you who are not sports fans. And they both involve high-tech passwords. You forget a password and get asked three security questions you may have selected eight years ago. You go two for three, good for the batting average, but you still cannot access your account. You call customer service and offer to provide your social, your last three payment amounts, and the businesses they were paid to. And then you even offer to read the U.S. Constitution to them backwards in Latin, just for the heck of it. And their response is, tough luck, because we are only protecting your account's security. My response is, of course, a duh. Meanwhile, since I cannot access my account, I cannot give them some money. Double duh. And while on the issue of passwords, how about suggested strong passwords like 98BW, capital V, capital S, capital C, 2 capital C, lowercase d, capital N, capital B, or also the equally easy to remember one of all lowercase C, Y, D, C-I-K, 9-W, capital Y, lowercase v-v-o. Huh? And then, duh. If universities can offer courses like Embracing Distraction as a Way of Knowing, a Belmont University, and Physics for Future Presidents, uh, UC Berkeley, 
Is it asking too much to add a mandatory course on common sense and maybe even a major? Go Team Go. Teach common sense. Hi, this is Joyce Hadley, and this is The Tornado Story, as read by me. I enjoy watching The Wizard of Oz every year, and I marvel at how a fictionalized tornado led Dorothy to the land of munchkins, flying monkeys, and a melting witch. It always reminds me that it's a good thing tornadoes don't happen around here. Hmm, famous last words. It was Thursday, July 29th. Started out as a typical morning for me. A light breakfast, quick check of the news, watch my dog scamper after squirrels, shower, get dressed, and I was ready to embrace a new day. It was one of those sunny, humid mornings, typical for July, with rain forecast in the late afternoon. I was a bit concerned when the tree service man arrived at 9.30 to spray the trunk of my maple tree to rid it of those spotted lanternflies. Do you think it's okay to spray today, I asked? Rain is in the forecast for the afternoon. No worry, he replied. This will dry in one hour. I wasn't terribly convinced, but I told him to proceed and hoped for the best. Around 12.30, I got into my car and went off to do a few errands, because the weather forecasts had changed considerably. They were now forecasting heavy rain with possible flooding to begin during the evening commute. As the afternoon progressed, clouds moved in swiftly. By 5.30, the rain began with no end in sight, and torrential flooding was being reported in many areas. Meteorologists on every local TV channel preempted the news and we're giving minute-by-minute updates of lightning strikes, flooding, and, oh my goodness, tornado sightings. By 6.15, I was getting constant pings from my cell phone and my home alarm system, advising everyone to be prepared to take cover as tornado cells were coming to Bucks County. Too much hysteria for me. Surely no tornadoes are coming here. But things became more ominous as the weather reports showed tornado cells coming closer to my area. Hmm, might this be a good time to quote Dorothy's famous line, There's no place like home. There's no place like home. At 7.05, a clap of thunder struck that sounded like a sonic boom over my house. I froze. I thought the house was going to collapse. And then immediately... There was a powerful gush of wind. I looked out my front window and noticed parts of my neighbor's fence was up in the air, along with spiraling pieces of wood from the children's treehouse. Uh-oh, closet time. I ran into my hall closet and hunkered down. I tried to get my dog into the closet with me, but all of the noise and excitement was too much for him. I prayed over and over in the closet, beseeching the Lord's protection. I covered my head as I continued to hear, bang, bang, bang. Whatever was flying through the air was colliding into my house on the outside. And then it was over. Dead silence. I ran to the door, looked outside to see a scene that resembled a movie set. 
All the neighbors were walking up and down the street in disbelief. Big trees had come down, some crashing onto cars, some completely covering the entrances to their homes. Sheds were uplifted and tossed 50 feet away. Downed electric wires were everywhere. Some houses had portions of their roofs ripped off. Downed trees blocked roads, making it difficult to get in or out of the community. Sadly, one house was crushed by a huge pine tree. Luckily, no one died or was injured. Damage to my home was minimal. The top of my cedar tree snapped and landed on my roof. I found a part of a lawnmower blade in my backyard, along with a three-by-two-foot cover from a utility transformer. I guess these were the thuds I heard while in the closet. No one had electricity for three days, and the buzz of chainsaws from tree service companies continued for the next few weeks. It was later determined that an EF3 tornado had touched down in my lovely Concord Park community. The only silver lining with the tornado was that it brought people together. Neighbors reached out to help one another. People from outside the community came to check on us and brought us food. And the police and firemen were fantastic. The day a tornado hit Trevos, Pennsylvania will go down in history. And I'm lucky to still be here to tell you this story. Hello, I'm Peter Waits. And this is a story entitled Angels, as read by me. What follows was written somewhere around 10 or 15 years ago. It was submitted as a guest opinion in my local newspaper, the Bucks County Courier Times, and it was in response to an article they published against a then recently enacted law that allowed same-sex marriage in Massachusetts. The editor refused to print this letter. He said if he did, they'd come after me and kill me. That's a quote. That's really what he said. I assured him they, whoever they were, would come after me, not him. But he wasn't convinced, so he never published it. It has always been one of my favorites, and it's about angels, and here's how it goes. The population of the world is growing, and the trend is that it will continue to grow. Many people believe we are born with a guardian angel. So that means that the supply of guardian angels has to be increasing at the same rate as the world population. And that brings up the question, where are all these angels coming from? Does God have a factory? Does he have a factory in heaven, or are they creating themselves in the same way that we humans create one another? Some years ago, my wife volunteered us to assist at a fundraising event. After our shift was over, the organization provided us with stale refreshments as compensation for our efforts. As we were sitting around a table chatting, one of the other volunteers stood up and proclaimed, I know everything there is to know about angels. If you want to know anything about them, ask me. I accepted his offer, and I asked him, what do they have for breakfast? I've never heard of a sick angel, and they seem to have long lives, so I figured, hey, if we mortals could eat the same thing as the angels, perhaps we could enjoy better health and increase our life expectancy too. He apparently didn't think my question was reasonable, and he didn't answer me. Instead, he got red in the face, glared at me, and then he quickly stomped out of the room. I never got a chance to ask him my follow-up question, which was, where do all the angels come from? Their existence and their large numbers have puzzled me until now. 
Here's my answer to my own follow-up question. I don't think God has a factory because if God were creating them, there'd be some uniformity of competence, and it is obvious that the competence of the guardian angels is erratic. Some people have charmed lives. Other people live in misery. So the guardian angels aren't being created with cookie-cutter abilities. That suggests they have to be creating themselves the same way we do it. They do it with the same mixed results. In other words, angels engage in sex. There's a strong belief in Satan, but I've never heard of a Mrs. Satan. When Abraham and the biblical story entertained guests in his tent, the guests, said to be angels, were men. Gabriel and Michael are the only angels with a name, and they are males. Actually, the only angels I've ever heard about are males, and of all the angels are males, then angelic procreation is a strictly male enterprise. The conclusion is therefore obvious. Since there were angels before there were people, except for the heterosexuals that get there, heaven was initially and still is overwhelmingly populated by gays. If gays in heaven are having sex, and if the only sex God allows is between married couples, then God has given his blessings to, and he himself is performing same-sex marriages. Since religious people want to duplicate here on earth what takes place in heaven, then same-sex marriage should be allowed for the gays here in the United States too. It thus turns out that Massachusetts, when it recognized same-sex marriage, was simply carrying out God's plan. New Jersey and Vermont allow same-sex unions, and they are on the right path, but obviously they aren't exactly right with God. Because we like to think of ourselves as a godly people, the religious folks who have opposed same-sex marriage should recognize that when they say gays are immoral, they are making a terrible, terrible mistake. They should stop their discrimination. They should stop their discriminatory utterances and stop their practices and stop calling for a constitutional amendment banning gay marriage. Instead, they should be insisting that gays be encouraged to marry, and the errant clerics who opposed it should now be proud to be godlike in performing the gay marriages in their houses of worship. Amen. Hi. This is Melinda Gordon, and this is Dancing with Grown-Ups, as read by me. On a Friday afternoon, in the early days of spring, anybody driving or walking down the street that runs between Ben Salem's two middle schools could probably have felt the electricity in the air and may have wondered for a moment if a storm was brewing. There was a sparking, jumping, invisible web that connected the two buildings, usually fueled by athletic competition, school spirit, or the anticipation of a holiday. This particular Friday, though, it wasn't the kids who were generating the power surge, but the faculty. I was the newest member of the Neil A. Armstrong Middle School staff, and I had no idea how to behave among these people who I considered grown-ups, let alone what to do when one of them showed up at my classroom door with what sounded like a command rather than an invitation. The Colonial, 3.30, he said. I looked up to see a very handsome face in a brown corduroy jacket with elbow patches and a stylishly wide tie casually posed against the light green tile that ran halfway up the wall. 
He was looking at me through dark and sparkling eyes and was pointing his index finger at me for effect. For a second, I was hypnotized. My brain did a quick scan of the situation to make sure he wasn't talking to somebody else. But since I was the only one in the room, I made eye contact. And I think I may have even nodded. Everyone's going, he said. Just follow the cars out of the lot. And then he was gone. Those who were lucky enough to have a last period prep were already in their cars in the parking lot, hoping to beat the massive yellow caravan that would hit the road at 3.05, carrying some 1,200 6th, 7th, and 8th graders to their homes. Others, like me, waited until the buses had gone and then made their way out into the sunshine and promise of the weekend. Driving the three miles up the road, I questioned my sanity. I don't go to bars. I don't drink. I don't have anything to talk about, and I really don't know what to expect. Before I could say turn around, though, my Camaro had somehow parked itself, and I was entering a new world. The door was squeaky and old. Opening it brought bright light into the room and let swirls of smoke out. The bouquet of beer, cigarettes, and old lacquered wood carried me inside where I made my way to a seat at the far end of the room. An elderly lady tending bar brought a napkin and the requested ginger ale, welcoming me with a smile and assuring me that she would be right there should I need anything, including a bowl of her homemade soup. Her name was Wanda. I loved her immediately. There was happy chatter everywhere bragging rights over darts games and calls of next for the pool table could be heard over the jukebox and the clashing of shuffleboard discs on the highly polished table. More and more people poured into the little place and there was room for all. Spare change on the bar was scooped up to fuel the music and packs of cigarettes were communal. Afternoon turned to evening and the crowd thinned. I had nowhere to be, so I stayed watching and maybe learning a bit. People that I knew only as Mr. or Miss from school included me in conversations and general silliness. I loved being part of the secret world of my faculty. A new scent entered my space suddenly. It was intoxicating. I looked up to find the same dark eyes that had earlier hypnotized me now smiling directly at me. He held a fistful of change and asked me to pick out some music. A simple but mighty gesture and an omen of things to come. We chose the music together, and the magical scent of the mysterious aftershave stayed with me. I was as dizzy as a 14-year-old. The following Friday afternoon, I raced home from school and changed into casual clothes, took care of my dogs, Casey and Dewey, and headed for the Colonial. This time, I tried my hands at darts and a game of pool. Everybody was friendly, and for the first time in an awfully long time, I was having fun. A group decided to go to another place where there was live music and dancing. It was the disco age, and I was not a fan, but once again came under some sort of spell and ended up in a strip shopping center at a little place that was screaming rock and roll music out into the street. Yay! No disco! Ushered in by my post-teenage crush with those dark eyes, 
It took me a while to adjust to the dark. This was a dinky, seedy little place. What the heck was I doing there? My question was answered quickly when standing became dancing and the room jumped up and down. It took us a minute to find our rhythm, me with my glam rock bop to every beat and he with his rhythm and blues swagger, but we were both smiling and laughing as we found our middle just as the song was coming to an end. We danced all night and every week afterward. Without effort, we had blended together and bonded over our mutual love of music, dancing, and soon, each other. Through the years, we've navigated every imaginable type of dancing, even country line, and have had an enormous amount of fun. Our kitchen dance parties eventually grew to include our daughter, Manon, and an occasional pup or two who just happened to be in the room. The music and the dance continue. This year, we celebrate 40 years of marriage, and there will be dancing, I am sure. Thanks for joining us. If you're listening on a podcast app, please hit the subscribe button to be notified when we release future episodes. For more information about the podcast and the authors, visit asreadbyme.com. You can also find us on Twitter, and you can stream video versions of the show on YouTube and Rumble. If you're enjoying the show and would like to help us keep it ad-free, please consider supporting us by visiting asreadbyme.com and clicking the donate button. If you're a writer and would like to read something on an upcoming episode, send an email to writers at asreadbyme.com. <laughs>